You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Mark Stout, historian of the museum. I'm a Ph.D. author and historian who served for 13 years as an analyst in the U.S. intelligence community. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. We're joined today by Major General Mike Ennis, retired from the United States Marine Corps. Uh, General Ennis is a graduate of Concordia College uh, with uh, BA degrees in French and international relations and has got his master's degree in government and national security studies from Georgetown. Uh, he was commissioned as a lieutenant in the Marine Corps in 1972, served in a variety of assignments, and then in 1978 uh, did something which I think was pivotal for his career. Perhaps we'll talk about it for a minute or two. And he entered something called the Foreign Area Officer Program, uh, studying Russian um, at uh, Monterey, California, and in Garmisch, Germany, a very nice place, I understand. Um, uh, a few years later, he found himself as a translator on the Moscow-Washington hotline, the so-called MoLink. And then in 1986, and this will be the main topic of our conversation today, he, uh, he um, served in something called the United States Military Liaison Mission in Germany. Very successfully, he had some uh, very interesting... Uh, did some very interesting work there. Uh, later on, rose through the ranks, uh, served as director of the Intelligence Division at Headquarters Marine Corps. Um, other positions uh, capped off finally in government by being head of Defense Humans. That's a position at DIA. And then finally as deputy director of the National Clandestine Service for Community Humans. General Ennis now works at SEIC, where he's the senior vice president for risk and international security. So long bio to distinguished career, and so we're particularly grateful to have you here. Welcome to the International Spy Museum. Thanks very much, Mark. Pleasure to be here. Well, uh, your bio indicates that uh, you joined something called the Foreign Area Officer Program in 1978. Do you want to just take a very quick minute and, and explain what that is? Absolutely. Uh, the uh, um, Foreign Area Officer Program was actually an Army initiative started back in about 1947, uh, uh, when the Army Senior Command uh, in Europe realized that in World War I, when the Germans invaded uh, uh, the Soviet Union, they first had to go through the Ukraine. And uh, what 
uh, and they treated the Ukrainians much like uh, all other communists or Russians, not recognizing that the Ukrainians disliked the Russians intensely. And they actually, the Ukrainians actually welcomed the Germans with garlands when they came into the country. But the Germans, not recognizing the, the potential ally here, went forward. They raised, the, uh, they burned the buildings, raised crops, and they treated the uh, 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 Ukrainians like Russians. Well, what eventually happened is it, this infuriated the Ukrainians, and they turned into the partisans that uh, uh, basically weakened the supply lines that were supporting the main effort in Russia and contributed, or were a large factor in uh, uh, the defeat of uh, the Germans. The American uh, army recognized that this lack of cultural awareness, this lack of historical insight, uh, uh, was, was a, a, a key factor uh, here and made the decision to go ahead and take a group of officers in a number of different uh, cultures around the world, Asia, the Middle East, Africa, uh, uh, Europe, etc., train them in the language, uh, give them a, a, get them a degree, a master's degree in that area studies of that particular country or region, uh, learn the culture, and then have them actually spend a year or two years in the country where they would have, be able to learn the language. The Marine Corps picked up on this in about 1954 and joined the Army, uh, obviously not with the same uh, numbers of folks. Uh, Marine Corps is much smaller than the Army. Much smaller uh, and, and a, a much diminished budget. And we chose three people a year, one for Arabic, one for China, and one for uh, Russian. And it so happened in 1978, I was a, uh, uh, an infantry officer, and an opportunity came up to do the foreign area officer program, and this sounded very interesting to me, and I went ahead and did it. Well, one of the assignments, as I mentioned just briefly in your bio, uh, that, that led to a few years later was as a translator on the Washington-Moscow hotline. You want to just talk for a minute about what that was and, and what, what that was like? That must have been a remarkable assignment for a, for it, a young officer. It, it, it was a good assignment. Uh, um, the, in 1962, when it became clear that uh, uh, Khrushchev and, and Kennedy had come very close to the brink of nuclear war. In the Cuban Missile Crisis. In the Cuban Missile Crisis, the inability to communicate directly between the two to defuse the situation was, uh, uh, became evident. And uh, so as a result of that incident, the United States and the Soviet Union, uh, uh, as a confidence-building measure, decided to go ahead and install a uh, a communications device between the two capitals. Now, a lot of people, uh, uh, in large part due to the movie Failsafe, uh, think that that was a telephone, but it wasn't. It was a teletype. And the, the, the Russians, I think, would have liked it to be a telephone, but the United States didn't want to do that, in large part for two reasons. Number one, as a teletype, you have a documented record of precisely what is transmitted. That's number one. But number two, the Soviets have many opportunities to uh, record the voices of our presidents uh, in crisis situations, uh, when they're running for office, maybe not always telling the full truth, uh, or and uh, um, in, in, in other situations where we don't have that opportunity to record the voices of Soviet leaders. As a result, they could 
the potential for them to do a voice analysis to determine when our president was or was not lying was out there. Never proven, but it was always out there. So the United States wanted a teletype. One for the written record, and number two, to prevent any possibility of analyzing the president's voice. So you were a translator. So given that potentially, if the hotline had ever been used in a real crisis, I mean, the fate of the world could, could potentially have been hinging on this, you must have had very, very good Russian. I would think that they'd look for the best they could possibly get to have that job. I was lucky. Uh, I, I, I got the job. I won't, uh, I, I won't speculate on the how I got it, okay? Uh, but I, but yeah, the Rus yes, the Russian was was fairly good at that time. Last last quick question bef before we move on to the to the main subject of today's conversation. How often is the hotline used? I mean, I think my mental image, and I suspect that of many people, would be that it's it's used only very rarely. That the president just doesn't just pick up the the hotline phone. It's not even a phone, but it doesn't just use it, you know, on a day in day out basis. That it That's sort of right. sits there not ringing most of the time. It is it is not used frequently. Uh, uh, but when it is, uh, we would always get a notification, uh, for example, from the Soviet side, where they would say, please wait for an official communication. That would give us the opportunity then from the communications room to notify the National Security Advisor that we had an inbound message. Uh, they would gather the troops. The, the message would come in, and we would translate it and send it over to the National Security Advisor. Uh, and if a response came back, we would get the typewritten uh, uh, memo, and we would put that into the machine and respond back and forth. And uh, although I can't, uh, I, I'm not allowed to reveal exactly when it was used, uh, I, can, I can tell you that there are, at the period of time that I was there between 1981 and 1984, the kinds of incidents that might generate a call uh, the Israelis uh, moving very close towards Damascus. Uh, uh, the uh, the shootdown of the KAL 007 in in Soviet territory, when the president would want to know something very quickly, it may just be to clear the situation up, or the Soviets uh, threatening the United States uh, over the advances of Israel, or things of that nature. Those are the types of events that could generate a uh, uh, you know a presidential phone call. Okay. Now, in the summer of 1986, uh, you went to something called the U.S. Military Liaison Mission in Germany. Uh, before we get to the circumstances of your, your arrival there and your time there, um, can you just give us a quick background? We, we don't need to go too deep into this because for those who are interested, we have, uh, have recorded an interview in 2011 with Brigadier General Roland LaJoy, who headed the USMLM. But just for the sake of orienting people on this discussion, what, what is the USMLM? And let's talk about how you got there in 86. Okay. Uh, very briefly, a, uh, at the end of World War II, when Germany was divided into four parts, uh, a British, American, French, and Soviet sector, there were a lot of uh, issues graves registration, vehicle accidents, deserters that couldn't be found, and that required coordination between the four, uh, uh, the four sectors, if you will. And with Berlin being located in the very heart of the Soviet sector, all of the issues with training, uh, bringing food in, personnel transporting families and those types of things, uh, uh, created even more logistical uh, and administrative problems. So in 1947, uh, it was decided, the four the countries decided to establish liaison missions within each other's territory. So the Americans, French, and British established a liaison mission 
inside of East Germany, in Potsdam, East Germany. And the Soviets established a mission in Braunschweig in the British sector, in Frankfurt in the American sector, in Baden-Baden in the French sector. And so initially, uh, uh, for the first few years, it was to resolve, the, the, the primary focus was to resolve these basic issues, if you will. But then, as, the, as those issues began to dissipate, uh, I think the, the four missions realized what an opportunity that they had, what a quirk in history, if you will, an anomaly, that all of a sudden we had people inside the, the Soviet enemy camp, camp, in the enemy camp, who were authorized to be there. And so the role gradually changed from one of administrative and logistical uh, issues to uh, uh, observation, reconnaissance, clandestine reconnaissance. And uh, I, I think it, it's important. Uh, I'd like to make a point here so people don't get the wrong idea. The work that the missions did in East Germany was clandestine. And what I mean by clandestine is that we made absolutely no effort to disguise who we were. We were there with U.S. military license plates on, uh, easily identifiable with an American flag. We wore our uniforms all the time. We never engaged in what would be classified as covert activity. That would be passing, trying to pass ourselves off as somebody that we weren't, uh, servicing dead drops, running agents, recruiting agents, that's classic espionage, that's covert activity. The missions were strictly clandestine. We made no effort to disguise who we were or who we worked for, but we made every effort to disguise our activity. Like where you were at Where we moment. were and what we were doing, okay? So, so a lot of hiding in the bushes and going off-road and that sort of absolutely, stuff? Absolutely, yes. Uh, 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 we we would be uh, open when we wanted to be, but then when it came time, when we wanted to evade our primarily Stasi uh, uh, surveillance to go uh, do the types of activities that we needed to do, uh, uh, then we would go clandestine. And our activities uh, uh, were essentially fourfold. Uh, number one was early warning. Of? Of a, of a Soviet, Soviet ground, ground attack. Conventional attack. Or a Warsaw Pact right. attack. A Warsaw Western. Pact attack. Number one, East Germany was at the, the spearhead. It was, the, if, if there was going to be an attack into the Fulda Gap, into, into Western Europe, it would come through East Germany. That, that was pretty well established. But number two, if you think about the time that the missions existed, from 1947 until 1990, the early part of that time, all the way through the mid-70s, early, early 80s, if you will, um, uh, our satellite capability was not all that great. Uh, it was a developing capability. And in uh, East Germany, which is in the center of the, uh, uh, the continental plain, uh, uh, there is cloud cover that can exist 40, 50 days. And uh, when you think about the Soviet equipment that was in East Germany, uh, uh, the, uh, the troops that they had, there were 20 divisions, five armies, and 24 air wings in a, in a country about the size of Ohio, the state of Ohio, that was probably the most highly militarized, target-rich environment, if, if you will, uh, in the world at that time. And if, if you were going to mobilize and mobilize quickly, 
you could do so under, if you have 30 or 40 days where you can't penetrate the cloud cover, uh, you can do a lot of work to get ready. You can do a lot of, of work to get ready, exactly. So, so you're the eyes under the clouds. Absolutely. We were the eyes under the clouds. Okay, so that was one of your that main was, missions. That was, that was one main mission. So we traveled the roads extensively, looking for anything that would indicate to us that there was going to be a mobilization. We knew when the training took place, and we knew where their training areas were. So if we saw a lot of trucks and tanks and things like that on the road, that ordinarily was not a big tip-off because it, it felt within... It fell within ordinary patterns. You sort of knew their rhythm of when they would be going yes, to the training areas exactly. and when they'd be coming Precisely. back and those sorts of yeah. things. Because they had their troop rotations just like any other military unit did. We know when they came in and we know, and so we knew training was going to begin very shortly thereafter. It was the unusual that we were looking for. The second thing is that because East, uh, uh, the group of Soviet forces, Germany, was the tip of the spear, all the best equipment went there first. So if there were going to be new, any new pieces of equipment, this is where they were going to show up. And we were always on the lookout uh, for the entry of new equipment. Because we didn't have access to all the Soviet training areas, 25% of East Germany was declared off-limits to the military liaison missions. Something called a, what, a permanently restricted area, PRA, Permit, I believe. PRA, exactly. And you, you were not allowed to go <clears> to <throat> we were not, and, and, and we respected that. And uh, that was one of the uh, inviolate rules that we had. We, we, we respected that. Uh, but what we did do is we, would, we knew where the major rail lines came in from Poland uh, or Czechoslovakia that would get to the major training installations or the major uh, 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 casernes or headquarters. So we would stake those out, if you will, at night and, and during the day and watch to see if there were new artillery pieces that came in, or uh, tanks, or uh, um, surface-to-air uh, uh, systems. But also, we would, uh, 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 if aircraft came in, we would get those at the, at the airfields. And so we went to where we could see where there were training ranges and observe that, take pictures uh, of, of this equipment. And uh, in, in some magazines, you may see the bottom side of a, uh, 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 of a Soviet jet. Satellites don't take that kind of photography. Uh, and uh, so it was one of our people who had made it into the end of a runway and was actually lying on his back with a 500 millimeter camera looking straight up at 80, 90 feet or 100 feet uh, and getting every widget uh, uh, on that particular aircraft. And so that data then would go back to Washington, Washington to experts to at the, in Army intelligence at DIA, maybe mm -hmm. CIA, for them to really understand the capabilities of these new systems that are newly fielded. That's exactly right. Okay. Okay. And uh, um, so we were, uh, uh, we went in and uh, if we ever had a chance, and that, so the third thing, so early warning was number one, and number two, we would take pictures of new equipment. But if we ever had the chance to uh, uh, exploit in any way some of this new equipment, and... What did, okay, so what does exploit mean to you? <coughs> well, what do you uh, mean? I think General LeJoy talked about getting inside of a tank uh, uh, and, uh, uh, and, and actually taking pictures uh, inside that particular tank and then uh, realizing that the T-64 Bravo, which was introduced back in the mid-1980s, the key there was the, uh, um, uh, that it fired its anti-tank missile through the 
barrel. Whereas previous to that, on other models of the tanks, the T-72 and others, it was a sagger that was attached outside the, outside the turret, right, where it was clearly visible. That was a major breakthrough. Exploit, another, uh, we had an opportunity, an airfield was being built in a certain part of East Germany. Uh, and one of our bright young uh, uh, officers uh, got the idea to actually take a sledgehammer and while it was in the process of being built, break off a section of that uh, runway and take it back. And when it was this piece of concrete was sent back to the United States and they did the analysis at one of our research labs, they found out that this runway would actually have defeated a, a runway-busting bomb that the United States had already contracted to build, and so they canceled the contract. And, uh, uh, and actually saved the government a lot of money. So just through that simple act of exploitation, uh, we're able to uh, uh, save money and to become more effective. I, I think it's fascinating that a chunk of concrete can have important intelligence value. Well, thank God we had some smart people out there because I would have never thought to break off a chunk of the runway. So that, that smart young officer wasn't you on this that occasion? That was not me. No, it was not me. <laughs> okay, just wanted to specify And then that. in another case, we were scavengers. Okay. I'll be very honest about it. We were scavengers. Uh, uh, and uh, every once in a while, a Soviet uh, a fighter would go down. And, uh, uh, you know, we would wait until the Soviets came in and cleaned everything up. And we would go back to see if there was anything that they missed. And on one occasion, we were able to get enough pieces and parts to actually determine that they were far more advanced in our metallurgy than we had expected, but they were far less uh, uh, capable in their electronics. And so this type of information then was critical for our design folks on the other side. So that's, those are uh, some of the, the kinds of exploitation that we would do. And toward the end, toward the end, we had a small hand in uh, the treaty verification. We were never a part, officially a part of the, uh, uh, the conference, conference and security building measures <laughs> or the conference on the disarmament in Europe. Uh, we, were never, uh, uh, we were never officially attached to them at all. But we knew, what the, we knew the thresholds of the Conference on the Disarmament uh, uh, in Europe, the CDE. In, in other words, <coughs> just so people can understand, and if I recall correctly, um, if the Soviets were going to have an exercise that involved putting more than X number of people right. or, or Y number of tanks uh, out, in the, out in the field to exercise, there'd have to be some sort of notification right. and perhaps invitation of, of inspectors from Absolutely. other countries. 42 days so of you wanted to see if they were in fact above or below that threshold, if they had invited That's you right. when they were supposed to. Exactly. And on one occasion in 1988, I remember this very well, uh, uh, we noted a huge number of Soviet vehicles on the road, tanks, artillery pieces, troops, armored personnel carriers, uh, uh, reconnaissance vehicles, and uh, we immediately all regrouped back in Potsdam and compared notes, and there was absolutely no question in our minds that they had exceeded the threshold. And we notified our folks back at, uh, in Heidelberg that... Uh, That's Heidelberg had, is the headquarters of the U.S. Army Europe. U.S. Army Europe. 
indicated to them that we felt that there, has, there was a clear violation of uh, the threshold, and they immediately launched, based on our information, a challenge inspection. And it was very interesting to note that within hours of the challenge inspection, we saw all this equipment that we had seen going into the training areas coming out, and it was, it was very funny because there were no tarps in the equipment, or if they were, they were blowing all over the place. Uh, the trucks were, the, the vehicles were dirty. It, it, they were getting out of there in a real hurry. They had to get under the threshold before the inspectors got on the ground. And it was, the road networks were all jammed up as they were trying to get back to their garrison camps. It was, it was hilarious. But, uh, and, and I imagine that equipment being moved without tarps on it uh, creates additional collection opportunities collection for you. Opportunities, you, that's you get right. better photographs than just some blob under right. a tarp. You actually get to see the piece of armored equipment or whatever, exactly. whatever it happens to be. And, and, and uh, uh, not, not completely related, but in terms of having an opportunity. We had access and we had opportunity. Uh, on another occasion, <clears throat> we uh, happened to get inside of a Soviet training area, and it was on a Saturday morning, and there was one tank uh, that was making a circuit, and it was, uh, its turret was backwards, uh, going at high speed, and uh, we took video of this, and we had both video and audio. It was the new T-80 tank, which we knew virtually nothing about. That was a but big deal. But it was clearly time, on, yeah. a, it was in 1987, I believe, 87. And it was, it, it was clearly testing out its suspension system and flying. It was, it was going very fast. But I didn't even realize it at the time, and I don't think anybody else did, but what was determined from that video, not only did they have this tremendous suspension system, but this was a gas turbine engine. This was not your standard diesel engine. It was a gas turbine engine, which we had never suspected before. And that became a, uh, um, you know, that was very useful information uh, back, uh, back then. So you arrived at the MLM in summer 1986, and if I recall correctly, our discussions on the phone before you came here un under slightly unfortunate circumstances, isn't that right? You were... Well, it was more timing. Uh, uh, the Army Major Nick Nicholson uh, uh, had been shot and killed, unfortunately, in March of 1985. And uh, um, I had been asked, uh, uh, I was scheduled to go to the mission in the summer of 86. But I was asked if I could get there a year early in the summer of 85. Uh, um, and whether this was to shore up for, for Major Nicholson, you know, I can't really speculate. But the earliest I could get there was uh, January of 86. So I didn't get there until uh, the, the, the summer of 86. And so we, were, um, we weren't undermanned, but we had... We'd, we'd fill that slot because uh, Nick's shooting was obviously uh, untimely and uh, they need, we needed to get people in to, uh, to fill the slots. We had to fill the 14 positions. We and had. you ended up being there about three and a half years. Just a little over three and a half years. Now, you're a Marine. Uh, we normally think of you know, Central Europe and, and, and that sort of thing as being Army and Air Force territory. Were, were you, first off, why were there Marines in the military liaison mission? And secondly, were you the only Marine, or were there, were there others from your service there? Okay, uh, that's a very good question. When the agreement was signed back in uh, 1947, uh, it was figured that the Army would have a predominant role, being the land force. Uh, the Air Force would have a secondary role. 
but also because you were right on the Baltic coast, they uh, opened up one position uh, for the Navy, and he was the naval representative or the nav rep. The Navy filled that position for about oh, seven or eight years, but then abandoned it because what the Soviets did is they took the whole Baltic coast and made that permanently restricted area. So not only was there a lot, not a lot of naval activity, but even if there was, wouldn't have been able to get there. You couldn't go look at it. So yeah. the Navy said, let's give this to the Marine Corps because we had both Marines and uh, we had uh, Marines who were aviators and who were ground officers. As a matter of fact, the person that I replaced there uh, was a, uh, a jet pilot, uh, an A-4 pilot, uh, and a very fluent Russian speaker. Uh, so uh, the Marines since 1954 had always occupied that position. And were you the only Just Marine? One. That's you, right. You were was, okay. the token. Yes. <laughs> the token Marine. Okay. Now, I believe you told me that during your time at the MLM, you did about 150 reconnaissance tours, as you called it, so right. missions driving around East Germany. Uh, what's it like? Can you sort of walk us through the, the preparation and, and actually going out on a mission? What, what actually happens, and, and what's, what's it like sort of launching off into the, okay. into the, the enemy zone? That was, that was the most exciting part of the whole thing, a absolutely. Um, <clears throat> what would happen is about uh, three or four days before you were assigned to go out on one of these reconnaissance missions, we had an operations staff uh, who would work in conjunction with analysts both at U.S. Army headquarters in Europe and back at the Defense Intelligence Agency. Uh, they would provide us with requirements, things that they were looking for, whether it was a piece of equipment, a particular activity, or something like that. Our operations officer uh, would put together a, a, a mission plan, if you will, and it was very much like the old Mission Impossible things, uh, Mission Impossible series, where your job, Major Ennis, if you should decide to do this, is to go here, 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 and here. It was a combination of training areas where we would try to penetrate the training area. It was uh, uh, an unusual complex, a building or something that they wanted ground photography of. Uh, in one case, I know it was a, a, you know, it could be a surface-to-air missile site where there was a particular radar where, in clear weather, the satellites could get the uh, the vertical. But what they were looking for was the horizontal, and sometimes we would get close enough to the missiles where we could actually read serial numbers off the back of them. With you the, got to be uh, pretty missile. close to do that, even with a right big, up, huge lens. Right up to the wall, uh, you can drive right up to the wall of the surface-to-air missile site, open up the hatch, get up, stand up, look over the wall with a thousand-millimeter lens, and actually take the pictures. Your heart's got to be pounding while you're doing that. It was. This has got to be cases. exciting stuff. This is exciting stuff. It, it was. It really got your, your adrenaline going. And sometimes you would go into, uh, uh, we would hear that a particular unit had moved, uh, we, either through signals intelligence tip-off or some other, another agency tip-off. Uh, <clears throat> we would hear that a, a particular unit had moved into garrison. So we would actually penetrate that training area and follow the roads in, not knowing who was there, carefully looking and going up and then getting into a position where you could look into that garrison, take pictures to see if we could verify if a particular unit was there or not. 
On one occasion, it was a, it was a cold day in the spring, and uh, there was this concrete road that the uh, Soviets used to take their tanks out of garrison and get to the nearest rail siding. And uh, uh, we, we had been told that, the, uh, that, that this garrison was expected to go to their training areas, but we had been waiting for a day and a half and hadn't seen anything. And so we decided to uh, go in on this road all the way to the garrison. And there was a hill, uh, uh, like a, more like a mound than anything else. And I remember clearly going up that, uh, that hill on that concrete ribbon road, and it was kind of muddy and wet. And all of a sudden, coming in the other direction, over the top of the hill was this big gun barrel of the lead tank as it was coming in this direction. And I remember telling my wife, when adrenaline enters the body, it's an immediate, you, you, you feel anxious. But when it, when it plunges in at that level, it, it, it's actually painful in the body. <laughs> and uh, we backed up as fast as we could, and our drivers had learned to do a J-turn. And that's where you, you go backwards, put on the emergency brake, spin the wheel, release the emergency brake and continue in the opposite so direction. So the car just rotates 180 degrees. And goes, right. Well, we did, not taking into consideration the slipperiness of the road, we did an O-turn, and it was a 360-degree turn. And when we came, when we stopped, the tanks were even closer than they were before. You're we still pointing at the still tank. Pointing. And so we had to roar backwards uh, down this tank to try to get away from these tanks, who by now saw that the chase was on. So they were after us. We were trying to get out of the way because a tank or a, a, a small uh, Mercedes Gelendewagen, the four-wheel drive SUV, is no match for a T-80 tank. And anyhow. Last couple of questions here. You, you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, going clandestine, trying to, be, trying to be lost, trying to be not followed. I don't know if you are going to be inclined to answer this question, but I'm told these... Mercedes that you uh, operated were had all sorts of special modifications that that would assist in that. Is that something you can discuss? They did. They did have some modifications. We uh, 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 we did uh, take out some of the storage space in the back, and we had uh, an additional capacity for our um, uh, for our uh, 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 gas tank. So we had a cruising radius of about 900 kilometers, I think, or a cruising range of about 900 kilometers. So we didn't have to fill up with gas, because every time we filled up with gas, the local East German gas attendant would call a Stasi. So all of our efforts to go clandestine would be uh, gone, if you will. We had an eight-ton winch on the front of the vehicle, so that if we got stuck going down a Soviet tank trail or if we had a flat tire on the front, we could raise the car up and, and uh, uh, with the winch, and uh, that was extremely important because we went a lot of areas where there were not paved roads, and having that was uh, uh, very good. Um, <clears throat> we also had uh, uh, infrared lights embedded in the, uh, in the front of the vehicle so that at night, <clears throat> if we needed to go lights out, we simply turned on our night vision goggles, turned on the infrareds, and we continued on. So you'd, you'd be driving, well, you'd have a driver, but the two of you would be in the car driving with night vision goggles on, That's right. seeing the infrared that wouldn't be visible to anybody right. outside. With we, we actually uh, drove down roads where Soviet troops in the middle of the night were actually congregated, milling around, having a cigarette or whatever, and we would just slowly go right on by, complete lights out, and could see them... Uh, 
like, like daytime. And they had no, well, they knew we were, they could hear a vehicle, but they didn't know who we were. So, yes, that was a... And you could shut your taillights off, too, I might have heard? Yes, we could shut our taillights off. See the, we could also look like a motorcycle. How do you look like a motorcycle? Well, you turn your right and left forward, your, your right side lights off, fore and aft. So there's only, it looks just like a motorcycle going down the road. Very good. All right, last question here. Um, you told me, uh, it's just an irresistible story. Uh, you told me uh, when we spoke on the phone a few weeks ago a story about an adventure in a Soviet bunker that I believe legend had it happen to your French colleagues, if I recall correctly. <coughs> I can't let you out of here without, without getting you to tell that story. And I know you weren't there. This may be urban legend, but this was part of the culture, I guess. There were a couple of incidents. One uh, uh, more, uh, a couple that I will relate. One of, one of the things that we did, if we went into a training area, we always looked to see if the Soviets left anything behind. Scraps of paper, and, and, and General Lejoy talked about this in, in the last uh, spy cast on the military liaison mission. But uh, this also included if we, uh, the Soviets sometimes had command bunkers that they would, uh, uh, sometimes they would be guarded, sometimes they wouldn't be guarded. And so we always went to see if we could get in to see if anything was left behind. Uh, uh, and when you go into one of these, whether it's day or night, it's... Have you it, been in one of these command bunkers? Oh, yes, I have. Okay, that yes, must also be a heart-pounding experience. That is a heart-pounding experience. I'm sorry, uh, go ahead. In, in one particular case, one of my colleagues uh, actually uh, went into this bunker. It was at night. And uh, uh, he was going through the labyrinth of rooms, and he saw a light that was on. And he went, and, uh, and there was a bed, a fully made bed, and uh, next to the bed was a glass of milk. And he thought this odd. There was nobody there. And he went to touch the milk, and it was warm. And he realized that he was not alone. Now, that was a, for me, that would have been a heart-stopping experience, okay, to be underground in a Soviet bunker in the middle of a training area at, at night. Uh, and and he got out and uh, nobody was any the wiser. Nobody was any the wiser. On another occasion, one of my French colleagues went down uh, into a bunker. It was all dark, and uh, uh, he he took a step forward, and somebody reached out and grabbed him on the shoulder. Now this French officer was a commando, and all he did was grab the shoulder and in the blind took a punch, and cold cocked. The Soviet that was right there, and then he got out of the, he got out of the bunker and went on his way. But uh, no, that is a uh, going into one of those places at night is a, uh, um, that is a, and we 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 didn't we didn't use our night vision goggles. That was technology we could not afford to lose, so we kept those in the vehicle. So when we went into these bunkers, we didn't uh, take any of our technical apparatus with us. Well, those are those are fabulous stories, and I, I really appreciate you sharing. Uh, you know, not only the, the high moments, uh, or at least exciting moments of being in the MLM, but also some of why the MLM existed. Uh, so, we could probably talk about this for a long time. Every time I talk to somebody from the U.S. Military Liaison Mission, they get very animated and excited, and clearly <laughs> enjoy it. And you're no exception. Uh, but all good things come to an end. So, uh, General Mike Ennis, I really appreciate you joining us here at the International Spy Museum. Thanks, Mark, very much. I appreciate it. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you, and we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we'll see you next month.
Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. 